Welcome to LilyPod episode 43, Rising Like a Phoenix. Jeff and Kathy Teichert bringing you another episode of LilyPod, which is a production of Love in Later Years. We are certified life coaches and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our messages are directed toward mid-singles and later married couples. We also welcome all who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. For our podcast this week, we are doing a condensed version of a longer, more interactive discussion that we did for a family home evening singles group online Monday, November 15th. Yeah, we were guests with a large family home evening group, uh, and they do a fireside every Monday, and it's kind of neat. And our title was called Rising Like a Phoenix, Personal Growth and Loving Relationships. We know from personal experience and from interacting with many of you that uh, becoming a mid-single in whatever way, either advancing to that age, not having been married, uh, losing a spouse to death or divorce, uh, can all be traumatic and difficult in their own way. And the, the big, almost universal experience that we have seen with mid-singles is sort of this deep disappointment about how things have, quote unquote, turned out. Uh, of course, we don't think that they have turned out yet. You're still young enough to have plenty of opportunities before you, but... And we believe that no matter what age you are. Right. I want to talk about something that... My favorite actual story in the Old Testament um, in the scriptures is about Joseph who was sold into Egypt. Now, if you can think of anything worse than having loved ones who should be protecting you and looking out for your best interest become jealous of you and sell you as a slave into a foreign country where you probably don't speak the language, where you don't know anyone, and you're a a stranger in a strange land, so to speak. I mean, he must have felt an incredible you know, kick in the gut in a way uh, when he landed in Egypt in the house of Potiphar and was was a slave. But then to be imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit and essentially be locked in a dungeon of some kind, uh, his life must have seemed about as hopeless as it could get. The sense of betrayal that he had must have been about as difficult as it can get. And I know in my own experience as a mid-single, I felt forsaken by God sometimes. I felt like, how has my life come to this? And I I remember a particularly poignant moment uh, when I was, it was New Year's Eve, and I was driving my kids uh, back to the state of Washington Uh, where their mother lived uh, after the holidays, and my car wouldn't start when I came back out 
uh, from the Flying J in, in Snowville. And I tried everything I had previously ever known to do, you know, jumper cables, cleaning off the battery posts, you name it. And nothing worked. I called my insurance company and they told me that I didn't have roadside assistance set up. Little hot tip, mid-singles, get roadside assistance. Anyway, um, but I called a towing company and they told me, they would charge me a couple hundred dollars to tow my car to a mechanic and they felt that the timing belt was probably gone and he said that would probably cost an additional $600 to fix uh, if we were lucky. Well, you know, because sometimes when the timing belt goes, you can do other damage. So I knew I had about 300 bucks in my checking account and not nearly enough to afford uh, the towing and the repairs that I needed to do. So I sat in the trucker's lounge all that night with my two sons watching TV and feeling really as low and as ashamed of myself as I've ever felt in my entire life. How did I put my children in this situation of being stranded in the middle of nowhere in the winter? And, you know, I didn't, I knew I didn't have the money to buy my way out of this problem. Uh, and it was a very forlorn, lonely feeling. I remember thinking, I have a doctorate and a postdoctorate degree. How did I end up in this situation? And things were not working out in my career at that time. I had accepted a partnership in a law firm, but it, it wasn't working out well. Uh, I wasn't getting the business that I needed to get. And so, I mean, I was at a very, very low point. I was already depressed about my divorce before that. But anyway, uh, this was kind of almost a new low for me. And, you know, while I wasn't put in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I did feel like I'd been sold into Egypt by someone that I loved. And I did feel like I was trapped, imprisoned in a sense, in a situation where... Um, I couldn't get out of it on my own. And thankfully, we were able to work all that out. Um, I was able to borrow some money from my parents and borrow an old car of theirs to get the kids back uh, to Washington in time to start school. But it was a, it was a very um, scary and lonely feeling. And I remember thinking like Scarlett O'Hara, with God as my witness, I'll never be hungry again, no matter what I have to do. You know, I made this vow and I was so passionate and so serious about it. And then a year later, I realized that things hadn't changed all that much. Uh, that I, I wasn't in a very different situation than I had been in a year before, and it really bothered me. 
And I received a revelation because uh, I did a lot of prayer and searching my heart uh, about why this was. And this revelation basically told me, you are meant to shine and you're hiding your light under a bushel. And I realized that even though I was going into work every day and trying to get a business started, that I was really hiding. <clears throat> I was avoiding people. I was avoiding being noticed. And I didn't even really realize it before, but I had so much shame over my situation that I just didn't want to see anyone. And so my business wasn't taking off. And anyway, I started getting bolder. I wonder and how many mid-singles end up in that situation where they feel so much shame about a divorce they never expected to happen to them or, you know, a loss that they just don't even know how to deal with people about. And that's why we rising like a Phoenix is it comes through personal growth and growing from the hardship rather than shrinking. By right. It. Right. And, you know, from a man's perspective, I can say, address what Kathy just said. I, I mean, I realize every man and woman has a different experience with this, but I know a lot of men either lost a job and the financial hardships contributed to the divorce or the divorce contributed to business losses and financial hardships. I've just seen that so much. And, you know, I still see a lot of men who say, um, I, you know, no woman will date me because my career is off track or I, you know, I have this problem or that problem. And it's, it's a really huge uh, confidence crisis for many of us. And it, it was for me. I want to fast forward in the story of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt. And of course, through this very improbable set of circumstances, he goes from being a prisoner in a relatively short time to essentially being prime minister of the country. And the scriptures say he was riding around in the second chariot. I sort of think of that like the vice president on Air Force Two or something. But Anyway, he became a ruler over all the land of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh. And as you may know, there was a famine which Joseph had foreseen and prophesied and had prepared the country to weather it by storing grain and so forth. And his family, the brothers that had sold him into slavery and their father and and so on. They came to Egypt looking for food. And Joseph uh, asked for them to be brought to him. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now listen to this. This is unbelievable. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. Woo. I mean, that is forgiveness on a level that I have a hard time understanding. But he says, Be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, 
for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall be neither earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now, it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. And so Joseph understands that being sold into Egypt was his path, that it is the thing that carried him to his destiny. And sometimes the trials that we experience are that way. And I can tell you from my own experience, I went through several years of deep depression over the loss of my marriage. And I was thinking, you know, it wasn't supposed to be this way. We were an eternal family. My wife broke her covenants. You know, I mean, I had all the thoughts that so many of you have had or may still have. But ultimately, I have come to understand that this was my path. Uh, if I hadn't gotten divorced from my kid's mom, I wouldn't have Kathy. I wouldn't have doubled the number of sons that I have by having her two sons as my stepsons. And if I hadn't had that experience as well as being laid off from a corporate job in Texas, and divorced for a second time, I'd probably still be out in East Texas running oil and gas titles. And instead, I'm a constitutional lawyer and I advise the attorney general and the governor on important constitutional matters. Uh, I don't know that I'm the prime minister of the country, but I have a job that I've been prepared for for many years and which I uh, feel a great sense of purpose in. What I'm saying is that many of the greatest things in my life came about because of the very things that caused me to suffer. Just like Joseph, he was raised up to power in Egypt to save a nation and his family uh, out of the misfortune of being sold into slavery and going to prison for a crime he didn't commit. He was married to a member of the royal family. And, you know, many uh, immense blessings came to him because of his trial. And Kathy, do you have something to share on, on what grew out of your own trials? or? Well, I'm not going to go into anything specific, but I can relate to everything you're saying. And I also came to the conclusion that everything that happened uh, for me becoming a mid-single, which also included two divorces, one from a long-term marriage and another from a short-term marriage, that um, both marriages and both subsequent divorces were for a reason. And the longer I live and the more I observe as we work in the mid-single community through love and later years, is that everything we go through is preparing us for something. 
Right. That it it's shaping our character. And of course we have a choice to either become better or stay bitter. And this is where personal growth and rising like a phoenix go together to create a restoration of a whole peaceful, confident person. And, uh, and you call it Shalom. Right. Uh, so we talked quite a bit about Shalom. Do you want to just quickly describe what that is? Well, Shalom is the Hebrew word that is often translated into English as peace, which is accurate, but it's not complete. It includes peace, but it also includes wholeness and restoration. Uh, so, so it's a bigger word than just peace. It's the kind of peace you have when you feel whole and when you feel restored, when the broken pieces are put back together uh, to make you stronger than you were and, and uh, more full. And I think my understanding of it, it's a place of feeling good. And my number one job every day, and I've said this before in the podcast, that my number one job every day is to be in a place of feeling good because that's when I have power to elevate those around me. That's right. We want you to think of a state of shalom, like Kathy said, of, of this place where you're feeling good, where you're feeling centered, where you're feeling whole. And and effective. We, and effective. And we want you to notice when you're disrupted. What is disruption? Uh, well, it's a stupor of thought would be one example. Now, a stupor, uh, according to the way that that was defined at the time of Joseph Smith, is when you lack mental clarity, when your thoughts are kind of jumbled. Uh, if that happens to you, you know your shalom is disrupted. If you're feeling anger and feel like lashing out or feel like, um, you know, being harsh to another person, your shalom is disrupted. You know, I remember when I, I was first going through my divorce and just completely like deer in the headlights shock feeling all the time, right? Right. I think that's when your shalom is mostly disrupted during an initial crisis and trauma. Uh, but, and, and I remember if I ever had a moment of shalom, one moment of peace, it was such a gift, right? And now I think life has become the opposite where most of the time I'm in a place of feeling good. And when it's disrupted, it doesn't feel good because it's not my common normal anymore. Um, and so I think the goal is to gradually turn that around so that it's the opposite again, you know, where we can, or even maybe for the first time in your entire life, that most of the time you're in a state of shalom and it's occasionally disrupted for various, you know, life events or whatever. Um, do you want to talk about the three, the three main points real quick? Yeah. Well, the, the three main points are radical acceptance, forgiveness, and cultivating uh, respect. Now, one more thing I want to say on the subject of shalom is practice it with small disruptions. For example, uh, you, you keep reminding your child, stop horsing around, don't be so rough inside, and then they break a lamp or something. You've all had that experience if you have kids where you warned them and warned them not to do something and something bad happened and you can definitely feel disrupted inside when that happens, right? And 
it's important, number one, to realize what that feeling is, that frustration, that anger, and then to understand how to put that rock down. And that goes along with some of the principles we want to talk about. Okay, so for radical acceptance, it's very simple, but it can be one of the hardest things to learn in life, and that is to take whatever is and accept what it is rather than fight against it, wonder why it didn't happen, ask all the, the what-ifs, and just accept what is. Right. And um, radical acceptance can shorten the duration of depression that can happen after loss. It also can increase the speed of recovery and healing. Yeah, you may remember a minute ago when I talked about my own experience, and I said that I was in pain for several years thinking it wasn't supposed to be this way. And now I understand that it was supposed to be that way, that that was my path and nothing was wrong. So the first thing, as Kathy said, completely accept things as they are and understand that resistance will not change it. Second, don't judge it. In other words, don't say to yourself or believe something has gone terribly wrong, the cosmos is out of balance, you know, things are not as they should be because that prolongs your suffering. And that's why Kathy said radical acceptance can help to shorten the duration of your suffering. And then trust that a loving heavenly father and mother have plans for you that are more glorious than, than the ones you had previously. And, and then focus, of course, on the things you have the power to change and work on. Radical acceptance doesn't mean I accept the fact that I'm stuck in this position for eternity. It's, it's not, it's not uh, apathy. Radical acceptance is merely accepting those things that are facts of our lives that we cannot change. Right. Radical acceptance is a beautiful thing. And if we had known more about it, we would have saved ourselves a lot of unnecessary, oh, yes. unneeded extra heartache. I mean, I know I would have. I would have recovered from my divorce much quicker. I mean, and, and there's nothing wrong with grieving. We're in not fact, to that's tell you very that. important. Uh, radical acceptance won't take that away. Right. But it will make it so that the pain is no more than it has to be. Kathy and I each lost a sibling at a young age. Um, my little brother was 17 when he died. And mine was just barely 20. Yeah. And if I'm my sister, yeah, Kathy's sister. And, and if I, when I lost my little brother was thinking to myself, oh, I'm sad. He was a big part of my life. I'm going to miss him. You know, all those kind of things that that is a healthy kind of grief and you'll move through that and you'll become happy again where where we get stuck is we hang judgments on it like he was too young to die it wasn't supposed to be like it this shouldn't have happened. it shouldn't have happened and those kinds of of thoughts are going to to get us stuck in in that grief you know what something i didn't mention during the fhe group i think just because we uh, it didn't end up, you know, coming out of my mouth, but I did think it, uh, that 
one of the main things I got from going to the temple, besides that moment of peace that I needed in the world full of turmoil during divorce, was a, a very, very clear awareness that the marriage and the subsequent divorce was all something God foresaw and that it was part of my path in life. And I don't really think I put it together with radical acceptance until this week. I right. just I just know what the revelation was and that it was comforting and that gave me a lot uh, to go on in the healing process. Um, and really, I think what God was teaching me was radical acceptance. Right. Our, our second point, cultivating respect, uh, is also really, really key. Uh, cultivating mutual respect, um, particularly by overcoming objectification, right? Yeah, it, which means we don't, to, to get away from objectifying other people. And that could include a former spouse or a dating partner, someone we loved and where we were hurt. Or even ourselves. Right. I know sometimes I objectify myself against my task list, which means, uh, you know, sometimes I might ignore some of my own needs, um, basic <laughs> needs to, to function as a human being because I'm just busy doing stuff. Right. Right. Um, so we want mutual respect and that cultivating of self and other person respect. Um, what what me, else would you just you describe objectification? Objectification, I would define as one of two things. Either you're using another person or thinking of another person as a means to get what you want, or you're thinking of that person as an obstacle in the way of you getting what you want. And so you start to have a heart at war toward that person either, either way. And how, how often do we do that? I think it's really in, easy to do it with a former spouse. Right. And, and because, you know, I realize now that for much of my first marriage, even though I loved my wife, uh, my former wife, I, I know that I, that my agenda for her in some ways was more important to me than she was, that the role I expected her to play in my life uh, mm. was more important than her status as a human being or a child of God. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea. It's not that I mistreated her. It's just that I think she felt tremendous pressure and to be something that she wasn't. Right. Well, and when we feel that way, then we're just constantly frustrated. I, I want to clarify something. It's not easier to objectify someone. That's the temptation um, to do it, I think, is more just because it is a temptation, not because it makes it easier. Right. You're just, it's, just, it's just tempting. I think we all do it. Um, right. In fact, you and I, even in our own marriage, we have to be careful not to do that. Uh, absolutely. Because we, we have things we want the other to do for us, services we want the other to perform and so on. And we have to understand that everybody has their agency that is a part of their humanity. And we have to honor that uh, in order to treat them as a human being, even if we think they're exercising it wrongly. 
So we've talked about, under Shalom, radical acceptance and objectification, um, you know, avoiding objectifying other people. By cultivating mutual respect. And both of those, I think, are important prerequisites to forgiveness. Which is our third point to cultivating and maintaining Shalom in your life. Right. I mean, if we have, if we radically accept a situation and understand, you know, even if it's the agency of our partner, uh, when they check out on a relationship, um, when we radically accept that, it's easier to forgive. And then in terms of, of uh, avoiding objectifying people, it's much easier to forgive someone when we think of them as a human being with hopes and dreams and a will and thoughts and feelings just as real as our own. And so it's easier to forgive when we can do both of those things. Now, forgiveness, I'd like to turn for a minute to the parable of the moat and the beam. And you recall Jesus talking about, you know, why are you paying attention to the moat or the moat in someone else's eye and ignoring the beam that's in your own eye. Well, uh, Pastor Tim Keller says that this is Jesus doing stand-up comedy in the Sermon on the Mount. But he makes the point that someone doesn't really have a plank hanging off their eyeball. But something that is directly on your eye or directly in front of it is going to look a lot bigger than something far away, right? A speck of of sawdust or something that's that's 10 feet away hanging in the air or sitting on the workman's table or something like that. And so uh, it's important for us to, to recognize that this is partly a matter of perspective. And of course, something that is in our own eye uh, is much more irritating than it would be if it's in someone else's and it blurs our vision, right? Again, perspective. If we have something in our eye, it's pretty hard for us to uh, remove something from someone else's eye. And I think understanding the, this analogy of the moat and the beam can help us understand that we need to cleanse our inner vessel uh, and, and that and understanding our own weakness will help us understand our partner or our former partners. Forgiveness is one of the most difficult things that we ever do in this life. You know that scripture, be ye therefore perfect? It's kind of one of the most intimidating verses in the Bible. But I want to point out that the verses leading up to it are love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and so forth. They're all about loving your and forgiving your enemies. And I believe that's the hardest thing we will ever do in this life. And when someone has hurt you really deeply, like a former spouse, and maybe you feel that they despitefully used and persecuted you, figuring out how to pray for that person, to feel love for that person, to continue to serve that person. I, I remember um, serving with an elders quorum president once. I was a counselor and uh, he told me after a presidency meeting one day that a member of that ward that where we were both living 
he told me he had been married to the primary president and that uh, she began having an affair with this other man and their marriage ended because of it. And um, the wife had gotten pregnant and she was coming into uh, church every Sunday holding the hand of this man that had broken up their marriage. And he was sitting in front of the, the ward as the chorister. And he had to watch them come in together every Sunday. And I thought that's, that would be overwhelming. That would feel so difficult. But I can tell you honestly that by the time I met this man, he had completely forgiven. In fact, as the elders quorum president of the man that broke his marriage up, he took soup to the guy when he was sick. Uh, he told his new wife after he remarried, we've got to be kind to, you know, the former wife and her new husband um, because we're all family. And yet wow. I know that it broke his heart when it all went down. It's quite amazing. And I think that kind of forgiveness makes us more godlike, more like Christ. Well, and forgiveness being a gift that we give ourselves, when it's looked at that way, not forgiving actually is even harder. Right. So we have a choice. We hit between two hearts. Yeah. And I mean, not forgiving is kind of like keeping that beam in your own eye. And it's really, you know, probably a speck, but it's super irritating, right? You've had things in your eye before. You know how that feels. And leaving that in your eye is going to continue to irritate and trouble you. And what, what's the scripture and the doctrine and covenants that when someone will not forgive in him lieth the greater sin? Because in him is that, uh, that speck that's not going anywhere and continues to irritate. Right. I, you know, I grew up thinking of sin as a book of black marks on some heavenly register as something outside us, like a record that's being kept of the things we've done. Oh, I remember thinking that too. <laughs> and actually, as I've matured in my understanding, I realized that the sin that we have to worry about is the one that lives inside of us. It's the, it's our fallen nature and the, you know, the pride that we have and so forth. And what prevents us from forgiving pride. Um, so, Forgiveness is essential to maintaining the kind of peace we need and crave as mid-singles. And also, I don't think you can really move on to a new relationship when you're still embroiled in the battles of an old one. Yeah, well, if pride is the thing that gets in the way of forgiveness and getting that those beams out of our own eyes, uh, I think then the opposite is true that with humility, which I define as sober confidence, which we addressed in another podcast, that with sober confidence, sobering is the fact that I can't do this on my own, I, life on my own. I need, I need help and divin, divinity to, to guide me. Uh, and then confidence that God will step in when I need him to. That's a, that's, that's a sober confidence. Humility is what I think makes forgiveness 
easier because we recognize we all fall short of perfection. We all need the atonement of Jesus Christ, and that puts us all in the same boat. Right, and this is what Kathy's just talking about, I think, is even uh, part of radical acceptance because we are, you know, accepting, like she said, that God um, is a loving God and, and charts a path for us uh, so we can have faith in that and believe that he is moving us toward uh, being the people that he wants us to become. Uh, that if we can trust in that, uh, then we can accept that everything in our life has not been as neat and clean as we might have hoped. Absolutely. You know, just to quickly uh, put these points together, and they really all tie together very well. Remember for personal growth that the first and foremost thing is to establish shalom and keep it most of the time. Right. And whenever it's disrupted, reestablish it again with these three things, radical acceptance, cultivating mutual respect by overcoming any uh, tendency towards objectifying ourselves or others and forgiving and letting go. Yep. And so, yeah, those are, those are the points we want to emphasize about personal growth and overcoming tragedy in our lives. We also want to talk about moving into loving relationships. So this is part two of this episode, Rising Like a Phoenix, is creating new, loving, healthy relationships. And the first point is the risk we take to our egos in approaching someone we're interested in. And the second the risk is the risk that we take with our hearts by becoming vulnerable in as the relationship progresses. Right. And those are the two things we're going to talk about. Right. So we have a little advice about approaching someone that you consider special or someone you may have a particular interest in. The first one, and I, I almost hate to tell you this, but fear is normal. And not only that, it's required. Uh, so many of the, so much of the the game of dating that we hear about is people trying to find love without risk. You know, and that could be anything from I'll get my friend to go talk to him to let's invite 15 people to a party so that one person will show up and might talk to me. You know, there could be any number of of things we do like that. But again, that's an attempt to find love without risk. And it, it almost never works. If it happens to you that you found love without risking, it's probably because your partner risked. Right. Someone has to take that risk. Right. Now, my second point is related or our second point, don't lay a foundation. Now that sounds kind of you know, counterintuitive because we, you know, a wise man lays their house upon the rock and so on. But what we're talking about is some people will, you know, will pursue something saying, I'm going to become really good friends with somebody and then I'll try to date them. Or, you know, let's see if we can run into each, you know, see if I know can figure out when they do their shopping and just sort of run into them there. 
and all these sort of scheming ideas. It's almost manipulative, right? Right. Yeah, and and we've seen it happen on a few occasions where somebody's laying a foundation for weeks and months and somebody else swoops in and starts dating the person and then you're kind of heartbroken. The second thing is I think a lot of people want to lay a foundation because they think it'll be easier uh, to move into that relationship. And my experience is it's usually harder because you're invested. You're more invested in the answer they give you if you then want to risk your friendship to develop something else. Not that that can't work. Because if you're certainly, if you're already in that situation, don't feel like you can't move ahead. But um, we're talking about from the initial approaching of someone you're interested in, just not to overdo the foundation part. Right, exactly. And we're not saying don't lay any foundation at all. I mean, you want to have had a conversation or something, but you know, you don't need a huge amount of, of prior contact to ask someone for a date. In fact, what, what is a date? It's, it's getting to know someone new. So um, that's, you know, I just want to mention the single, there's a single mom I know who's concerned about her time and that she only wants to get together with someone if she feels like there could be a future. And so she's, she's always been tempted to have that long foundational building. So, you know, what, what, uh, we talked about is coming up with a few questions that can at least get you to the point where you can fairly quickly know if there's, if you want a a date, if you want to go on a date. So, so it doesn't have to be a long process. You can basically eliminate people fairly quickly with those questions that are about your list. So in our book, Intentional Courtship, we have a a chapter called The List. And, and that's where you can get really intentional and very introspective about what you're looking for so that you can ask very simple questions that will help you eliminate anyone that wouldn't fit that for you. Right. Along those lines, we also want to suggest that you be honest about what you want and ask for it without gimmicks or scheming. Don't try to make it ambiguous whether you're asking for a date or not. You know, no plausible deniability. Uh, And then I I liken this a little bit to uh, looking off the edge of the high dive down into the water. And of course, that's terrifying, you know. You don't want to do that when it comes to dating. You don't want to sit there and ponder it and look off the edge. Take the flying leap, make a big splash, and, you know, ask for that date. And knowing that most of the time they'll say yes. I right. think a majority of the of the asking is, is received well. And, and a lot they, of it's received well even if they don't say yes. Exactly. And if for some reason it's not received well or or you're disappointed in a no, um, your ego is not as fragile when you've done that personal work to, to create and maintain shalom, to cultivate in yourself respect and mercy and forgiveness and compassion, um, because then it's no longer really about you and it doesn't need to be. Right. It's not personal. Right. 
keep in mind too that an invitation for a date is a commitment for one evening, not for eternity. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you when when someone asks you for a date, don't assume they're in love with you. Assume that they see enough that they'd like to get to know you better, and that's it. And they they agree to to spend an evening with you or an afternoon, whatever your date is, but don't assume that that it, they are looking for a serious commitment from you right off the bat. That's probably not the case. It takes a lot of pressure off when you can just see it as, as simple as it is, an hour or even a half hour. Right. Or maybe two hours, whatever you plan. It's, it's a little gift of time from them and f- from them to you and from you to them. Right. And on the, on the flip side of the same point, um, don't assume, don't assume it even in a positive way. For example, I've heard people who went out on a first date with somebody on a Friday night, and then that person was out on a date with someone else on Saturday night and they're, oh, he or she is a player, you know, they're, they're a cheater. Well, you might've been cheated on in a marriage and that was very traumatic. But the point is um, it doesn't make someone a player if they're dating a lot of people at one time and, and they don't have an exclusive commitment with anyone yet. Right. So it's very important to wait to have had that conversation before any assumptions are made. Right. So takes a lot of the pressure off, like Kathy said, to just assume this is a commitment for one evening. And if things go well, maybe there'll be another one, but, uh, but we're not assuming that the person's in love with us. Um, be positive and friendly. We, we think that's super important because if it is a first date with someone you end up together with, uh, that's going to set a, a tone for your relationship that going forward. And it sets a tone for the evening, even if you never go on another date. So that's important. A lot of people want to spend the whole first date bagging on their former spouse. How do you feel about that, Kathy? Oh, no good. (laughs) There's so many more interesting things to talk about. Right. And if you don't know how to talk about anything else, you're not ready to date yet. Go back to the personal growth part. Right. Um, But if you have done all of that personal work, um, then it's, it's not going to be as much of a temptation. And you could even help whoever might be in that position to start having a more positive experience and dialogue. Right. Remember also, friends, uh, to keep disappointments in perspective. And remember, n- nobody owes you a chance. Nobody owed me or Kathy a chance. Uh, we always have to honor agency. If you know, maybe this person doesn't want to date you because she's taller than you are and you would wouldn't mind dating her, but that's something she can't seem to get past. Well, you might think that's a dumb reason, but it's her, it's her right to make it. And if we can have radical acceptance about that, we don't get so hung up on rejection when it, does happen. Yeah. The lovely thing about all that personal growth is that it makes it a lot easier to develop new, loving, healthy relationships. Right. Or even just the attempt of it. 
Right. And the other thing about the disappointments is, you know, I know that I'm not for everyone. I wouldn't have been the right husband for a number of the women I dated. And, and I don't have to be for everyone. I only get one wife. I only want one. And so, you know, for me, I don't have to be a good match for everyone. I don't have to be accepted by everyone. And a lot of people say, yeah, but I've dated and dated and it never works. And all we're going to tell you about that is it never works until it does, but it really only works once. It only needs to work once. Right. So all we mean is it hasn't worked yet. Yes. Always add the yet. Right. Because it's, it's not over. Life is continuing. Right. And be persistent. Yes. The rewards tend to go to the persistent and keep that in mind. It's kind of like the law of the harvest. You keep sowing, you know, and eventually you'll be rewarded with a crop, even if you have other setbacks, Mm -hmm. pest infestations or floods or, you know, drought, whatever. The more you can spread out your seed and your land, like in a way that provides a lot of options, like the better chance there will be to have a mutual uh, attraction. Right. And so let's say that has happened and we're going to go on to number two um, of the, the two part, you know, to developing loving relationships is, is taking a risk with your heart by being vulnerable. Right. And this, this is typically when you've been on a few dates or longer, more than that, and you really want to start moving ahead the way to deepen a relationship, as Kathy just said, is to be vulnerable, to open your heart, to be, uh, you know, to, to, to let them see your fears, your insecurities, your deepest hopes and dreams, the, one that are, the ones that are so sensitive you don't even share them with a lot of your friends. Right. And that takes a bit to get to a point with someone that you feel comfortable sharing those things and as it should be. Um, we don't lay it out all, all out on the first date and, and it, it, it wouldn't be wise to. So this is for a little further on in the relationship. And, uh, I know for one, I would not want to ever be entering into a marriage where I've tricked someone into marrying me because I didn't really tell them everything that is pertinent and relevant. Um, obviously we can never share our entire lives, every moment of every day with anyone. I mean, that's, that's impossible. Right. I mean, that's what makes marriage interesting is we're always remembering new things about ourselves, you know, but we're talking about the major things that it would be unfair to not let another person know about. I know I want to be loved for all of me and I want to love my partner for all of him. You know, Kathy and I, um, dated for a, a good part of one year and then uh, broke up, or as Kathy prefers to say, transitioned at the end of that year. And then toward the end of the following year, so uh, almost a year later, in fact, it was over a year later, slightly over a year later, um, I wrote a letter to Kathy asking her to date me for marriage. And 
pretty bold, pretty bold move um, because we hadn't dated in a long time. I didn't know the status of who she might be dating, and she didn't know that about me either until the letter. But in any case, um, shortly after that, as we were kind of moving, she was kind of moving in my direction. She sent me a message saying, I, I never want to keep anything from you. And uh, I don't, I, I don't want to ever be in a relationship where I don't know if, if I could have been accepted, if my partner knew the truth, the whole truth. And she said, I have something to tell you. And I, I have hope that you're a forgiving person. And uh, it wasn't anything she had particularly done to me. Um, but she had some things she felt um, vulnerable about that, that were very personal and, and even painful. And so we talked about it that evening. And I can tell you that after we did, I believe we were closer than even before um, because of that, that sharing that had occurred. Well, and the risk is it could always go the other way. Because I actually might. once made the mistake of answering a man's question. I, I felt we were far enough in the relationship that I could answer it comfortably. Because I think usually you filled the questions that come on a first date that, you know, you're like, no, it's too soon. Yeah. Um, but um, he didn't respond well. And he didn't really even want to hear it. And that right. felt like I, almost like I had just undressed you know, myself, right. like I just felt so naked and there, you know, without a return of any kind of, you know, compassionate listening. And I, that was weird for me. Right. Um, so, you know, that can happen too. Um, but if, if, again, it goes back to the personal growth, if you radically accept however anyone chooses to respond and, and develop a self-respect, then you know, if you shared with the wrong person, it's okay. You right. know, it's not the end of the world. It might feel a little uncomfortable and frustrating for a minute, but you can move on from that. Right. Ultimately, uh, Elder Holland gives us the counsel that, that no one can be meaningfully married in the way that God intends us to be married without sharing everything all of our heart and soul and our deepest desires, our deepest fears, the whole thing. Uh, and he said, you know, could Christ going to Gethsemane for all of us hold back emotionally or did he make himself completely vulnerable? And he said that as Christ, you know, talks about the church as his bride and all of us as his bride in that sense, that when we go into a marriage, we need similar vulnerability. Now, that is what will deepen a relationship. Uh, and if you end up uh, going that direction and then the vulnerability shuts things down or throws cold water over it, well, then you know. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it can just answer the question. Right. In a in another way. Uh, but I do think vulnerability in a marriage uh, relationship that continues to progress is is a work always a work in progress. It's it's always um, something that can be improved, just like our 
our membership in the church and our spiritual relationship with God, it, it's a constant work of, of work in progress. Right. Right. So to just, just a quick reminder, remember that loving relationships take a risk to our ego and approaching somewhere and we're interested in a risk to our heart in being vulnerable. Right. And, um, and then to go back to the title of this, this presentation, rising like a Phoenix, uh, there's a really great symbol of that in the Provo city center temple. Or and we if, were married. Yes. And if you could just close your eyes for one moment, as long as you're not driving, um, and just imagine the Provo city center temple and it's all its beauty and glory and how before that it was burnt to the ground as a tabernacle, um, something less holy, something, um, uh, beautiful, but not quite yet up to its potential. Right. Right. Um, now did that fire look like a tragedy? Yes. But does that temple now look like a tragedy? Right. No. Did our divorces look like tragedy? They sure did. Does our marriage look like a tragedy? Not a bit. And yes, Joseph, was it a tragedy that he was sold into Egypt? I think thousands. I think at the time. It seemed like it. Yeah. But thousands or millions of people will bless the fact that he was sold into Egypt. Um, was it a tragedy when I got laid off from my corporate job in Houston? Sure felt like it. Was it? No. Is it now? I have a job where that I'm much more passionate about now where the money is better, where, you know, everything about it almost is better. So. So what we're basically saying is that in rising like a phoenix, in taking the ashes of destruction and rising up out of them, we become what we're meant to be. We are led to where we're meant to go. And ultimately, what it means is that some of the best things can come from the worst of things. Right. And if you're in that spot where you're right in the middle of that suffering and you're staring into the dark abyss and think it will never get better, I promise you it does. Because your path uh, is is set as charted by a loving father and mother in heaven. That's right. And just keep in mind that the narrow straits, the, the dire straits, straits are, are not a straight line. Life is messy. Right. Um, straits are simply a safe, narrow path through danger. And it could even be a winding path. Because straight doesn't mean direct. It, it actually means narrow. Yeah, and so, a narrow path through dangerous. Could be like moving through a maze. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just remember, it takes time. So if you're in the middle of reestablishing your life, um, just take, take yourself where you are. Give yourself loving compassion and take the steps necessary towards personal growth and then loving relationships and, and then continue that um, until most of your life is filled with a great deep sense of peace and shalom.
Well said. Uh, we appreciate you listening and hope that this has been enjoyable for you. And remember, anytime is a great time for more love in your life. Subscribe to LilyPod to get notice of each new weekly episode. If you enjoy what you heard, share with those you love. For more information about our organization and services, visit loveinlateryears.com.